Hi. Welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Vanita Jones, and it is such a privilege and an honor to be here with all of you today. Um, I love studying God's Word with all you ladies. It is my sweet spot in life, and it makes my heart so happy. And today, we're studying about John the Apostle, and we're going to go all over the Gospels, and this is what it looks like in my Bible today. So good luck following along. Those of you that have it on your iPad or your phone, you're going to love this day. The rest of you will be flipping around. Try to keep it quiet so it doesn't distract me. I'm very distractible. We're studying John the Baptist. There are a few Johns in the Bible. I think you know that. There are a few Johns today. It's a very popular name. But there are three in the New Testament that we sometimes get mixed up. John the Apostle was one of the disciples of Jesus. He is not John the Baptist. Okay? John the Baptist was the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, cousin to Jesus, and he lived in the wilderness. If you remember, John the Baptist wore the, the animal skins and ate locusts and rugged dude, and, and he was preparing the way for Jesus. That is not John the Apostle. There is also a John that's mentioned in the New Testament. His name is John Mark. Apostle John is not John Mark. John Mark was a cousin to Barnabas, And Barnabas was one of Paul's associates, and so was John Mark. The John we're talking about is the Apostle John. He wrote five books in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the three letters, or the epistles, as they're called. The first, second, and third John, which we're going to dive into this week. And then he also wrote uh, the book of Revelation that he wrote when he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Now, let's just get something straight here. I've been to Patmos. You can exile me there any day. (laughs) I loved it. It's beautiful. Apparently, it was different when they sent John there. They say it's rugged, desolate. They've they've stepped up their game. (laughs) But he was isolated there, apparently, and he made good use of his time while he was there because while he was there, that's where he recorded God's inspired book of Revelation. Now, it's widely accepted that John did all of his writings later in life, most likely in the last 10 to 15 years of his life, and he lived to be in his mid to late 90s, so he probably would have started writing somewhere around 80. That's when he would have started writing the Gospel of John and all the rest of the books, which means he would have written this Gospel, his Gospel, some 30 years or more after the other four Gospels were written. I think that gives it a different twist. We also know this. He's the last man standing. He's the last of the apostles that walked with Jesus that's still alive. And he's going to write his Gospel now. Now, we don't know exactly the exact time that he did his writing, but I did some research on possible dates. So like the Gospel of John may be between 80 and 88 AD. First, second, and third John may be 90 to 95 AD. And then the book of Revelation somewhere 94 to 98 AD. Of course, we know, of course, all the Bible is, is inspired word of God. And it was written by his leading, God's leading. But knowing that John wrote these books in the latter years of his life may explain why the Gospel of John is so relevant today. 
In fact, the Gospel of John, of all four Gospels, is kind of the go-to Gospel for today's Christian. And I think it might be because he had had a little more time to think about all the questions that were going to be raised. I think he had had a little more time to know about what doubts the new generation of believers had since Jesus had been risen from the dead. And he'd also had some time to see some false prophets, some false teachers arise. And they were skewing the gospel. And I think it gives his gospel a different twist, a tiny bit different than the rest. Now, on a side note, I read something that was kind of disturbing to me. When I was searching for those dates I gave you about possibly when things were written, I came across something that instead of AD, BC, I kept seeing CE or BCE. I don't know. Some of you out there may know exactly what that is. I was really confused, so I did a little research on it, crawled outside under my rock, got on the interweb. I was shocked by what I read. In fact, I'm going to quote it directly from what I saw, because I couldn't, I can't make this stuff up. CE or common era, you can almost feel the kind of condescending tone when I read it. It's the modern alternative to AD. Hmm, really? Traditionally, traditionally, outdated is what they're saying, the Western calendar was divided into BC before Christ and AD, the year of our Lord. This is where it gets really disturbing. There are enough doubts on when Jesus may have been born that the calendar may have been inaccurate all these centuries. Oh, there's more, get ready. It goes on to say the simple reason for using BCE and CE instead of BC and AD is to avoid reference to Christianity and in particular to avoid naming Christ as Lord. What? That is crazy. I mean, John knew this stuff was going to happen. He was already seeing it. This is nothing new. And so John is written for us today. He wants us to know Christ is Lord. This is when he was born. You can set your clocks on it. Now, the Gospel of John has been given the name the Evangelistic Gospel by some theologians. It was given that name because of the language and the tone. He uses the words like believe, light, life, eternal, love, grace. He uses these words more than any of the other Gospels combined. And to give you a little bit of perspective about the Apostle John at the time he did his writings, I want to read an excerpt. It's from one of the books I read, one of the many I read this summer about John. There were some really good ones, and there were some really not good ones. But this one is from a book called Life Lessons from John. It's written by Max Licato. It was okay. But I love the way he put it at first. After I read what I'm going to read for you, it kind of opened my eyes to this man who wrote so passionately about truth, love, and light, and the deity of Christ. Why was it so important to him? And if we dive into his letters starting this week, you're going to feel that urgency. You're going to feel that passion that he has, and this may help you understand why. So just just relax for, I'm going to read two paragraphs out of this book. He's an old man, this one who sits on a stool and leans against the wall with his eyes closed during the church service. Some assume that he's asleep, but those who know him best, they know better. 
He's not resting. He's traveling. He's traveling atop the worship music back to when he was a young man, when he was a strong man, back when he was on the seashore with his brothers by the Sea of Galilee, back in the temple with Caiaphas and the accusers. He's there at the foot of the cross with Mary as Jesus took his last breath. He's there at the empty tomb with the women. It had been decades, but John could still see him. The memories had taken John's strength, but not his memory, and the years had dulled his sight, but not his vision. He had been with Jesus, and it had changed him. He could never, ever forget the water that had been changed into wine. He could still taste it. And the mud that had been placed in the eyes of the blind man in Jerusalem, John could still remember the joy on the man's face as he realized his eyesight had been restored. And the voice, oh, that voice. That voice saying things like, I am the way, I am the light of the world. Those who believe in me will have life even though they die. Those words of Jesus had been seared into John's soul and all those scenes branded on his heart. How could he ever forget? He had been there and it had changed him. And the music stops and he opens his eyes and he thinks, if only they could have been there with me. Most of them hadn't even been born. And the ones that had been are all gone. Peter, James, Nathaniel, Paul, all of them, all dead. Only John remains. And as he looks at the man teaching who is speaking of one who has never seen with his own eyes, and he's explaining words he's never heard with his own ears, John thinks, what is going to happen when I die? Who is going to tell them how Jesus silenced the waves, how he fed the 5,000? How are they going to know? Suddenly in his heart, he knows what he must do. And later, under the light of a sunlit shaft, the old fisherman unfolds a scroll and begins to write, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He's talking about Jesus. That's the John we're talking about. So exactly who is he? Who became the apostle of love? That's what he's known as. The one that we see when we see in paintings, he looks, he's usually lounging on Jesus' shoulder. He looks something like that. Oh, he looks so meek. Look at him. He's so adoring, and I don't know what the guy behind him is doing. He looks freaked out. (laughs) Deb and I speculated that was Peter. I don't know. I have any clue who that is. But he looks so kind and gentle and sensitive. But we know that because he wrote these years later, we're going to have to go to other places in Scripture to find something out about him. And today, we're going to do very little in John. We're going to do some. But like I said, you're going to need your phones on speed dial if you're looking at it, and your Bibles and your fingers on speed dial. And we're going to find out who this John really is. In fact, we see very little of John in the Gospel of John. 
I think he wanted his gospel to tell more about Jesus than about him. So he picked out the most important things for us to know. And we're gonna dive in today. We're going to Mark first. So I tried to make this as logical as possible. So you're just gonna move through the gospels. It's the second book in the New Testament right after Matthew. And we're going to Mark 1. And we're gonna read the first um, seven verses, start, and not first seven, but starting at 16, we're gonna read seven verses. Now, on a side note while you're getting there, if you looked at jo- the Gospel of John this week when you did your questions, you notice he doesn't refer to himself in, in his Gospel. He calls himself the, the one whom Jesus loved. That caused some speculation that maybe he didn't even write the Gospel of John. There were only a couple guys that thought that. 99.99% of everybody out there says, this is the guy that wrote the Gospel of John. And they had a lot of reasons we can't get into today, so that's where I've pitched my tent. John wrote the book of John. So follow along at verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Okay, so John the Apostle, also known as, he's got several aliases, I think, John the Apostle of Love. You may even hear him referred to as John the Elder, because he was an elder in the the early church. He was among the first four men called by Jesus to become one of his disciples. And upon being called, he immediately left his home and family and followed Jesus. So there's two things you know about John. On the other, now there's a lot of other factual information I wanna give you real quick before you learn more about his personality. John grew up in a very devout Jewish family. He was raised by his father Zebedee and his mother Salome. It's believed that Salome actually became a believer later on. He spent his early years working as a fisherman, probably with his brother and his dad, and possibly alongside Peter. They may have known each other. He committed himself to discipleship under Jesus, and he spent the rest of his adult life sharing the gospel, some in Jerusalem, some in Ephesus. And at one time, he actually lived in Jerusalem. He said he most likely owned a home there. And shortly after the destruction of uh, Jerusalem by the Romans, 70 AD, he moved on to Ephesus. And while he was in Ephesus, because he was so well-versed in Scripture, and let's be honest, he had been trained in ministry by the Lord himself, he led many people to Christ, many, many people later on in his life. Now, as John looks back and he ponders on all that he's experienced, he knew he had much to say to that next generation, and he had spent time with Jesus, and he was living for Jesus most of his life. And that transformed him. He's feeling this urgency to make sure that all these generations, ones coming like us, we're writing changing time because we want to write Christ out of it. He knew what was going to be important. He knew that we were going to need to know the truth of the gospel 
and what was important to Jesus. And he knew what was important to Jesus because he'd done life with Jesus. He ate with him. He sat with him, walked with him. He, he cried with him. He was part of his inner circle. And we saw that in Mark 1, 21 and 22 that Jesus wasted absolutely no time teaching these guys. It says immediately he started teaching the new di- these disciples. And did you notice that as soon as they said yes, they immediately left. And what is the next thing we see recorded in their walk? We see him standing close to the Savior. They're standing close to Jesus and they're drinking in his words. Taking everything in. And the more they heard from him, I bet the more they wanted to be more like him. And the more they heard, the more they wanted to follow him. Look at Mark 8, 34 in your verse sheet. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And 1 Corinthians 11:1 1 on your verse sheet says this. It's Paul writing to the Corinthians. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He's saying, do what I'm doing. I was with him, I know. I'm doing what Christ did, do what I'm doing so you'll be doing the same thing. See, Jesus calls us too, and saying yes to Jesus' call requires us to respond like, Paul, like John did. It requires us to let go of our old selves and become purposeful about imitating his life. And the only way you can do that is to know what his life is all about. That's when our life transformation begins as well. Now, John doesn't use his name in the Gospel of John, but he does call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. We see that all throughout. He also says, he refers to himself also as the other disciple. Now, when I first started studying John this summer, I thought, God, that's kind of lofty. Like, maybe you should have thought a little bit before he wrote that down. That could come back to bite him. You know, on my mind now that I've done a little more studying, I don't think it's as much pride as it's, he he became this humbled man that knew that he was transformed by the love of Jesus. See, John knew who he had been, and he knew who he he had become, and it was only because Jesus had loved him. And that's how he refers to himself. Now, we're going to continue reading in Mark. I want you to drop your eyes down to Mark 3. You may have to go over a couple pages. And we're going to Mark 3, 13. I want to explain real quick the difference between a disciple and an apostle. We throw those words together all the time. Disciple is one who is being taught. Okay, so these guys had been called and they were being taught. They were disciples. And Jesus is about to, to appoint them, send them out. And an apostle is one that takes what they've been taught and they deliver it, they take it out. So follow along, I'm gonna read to uh, verse 19. And he went up on the mountain and called to those whom he desired and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also called apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James and John, uh, James and. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. There they are. It's the dream team. 
12 of them, and John was in that 12. He was part of the dream team. Now, we see this reference in there to uh, Son of Thunder. Hmm, it's, I guess it's better than Boanerges. <laughs> Whatever that would sound weird, but Sons of Thunder, Apostle of Love. Man, how did this, one thing is not like the other, and if you're like me, it begs the question, how did the Son of Thunder become the Apostle of Love? Because I think there's something here we can all learn something from. In fact, I think the story of John the Apostle is probably the most dramatic account of personal transformation ever recorded, right up there with Paul. He was rough around the edges, to say the very least. I think we can rightly assume that the son of thunder didn't get his name because he was meek and quiet and gentle and sensitive. Not at all. In fact, there's very, a lot of scripture recorded on occasion when it's going to lead us to believe that John was anything but meek and gentle and kind and sensitive. And in a few minutes, we're going to go through those. But first, I want us to look at a couple other scriptures right quick to get a little more information about his early years so we know some things about him. I want you to jump over to Luke. I got these great little tabs. Isn't that fun? I love them. I might keep them in my Bible. Okay, we're going to look at 8. Luke 8, starting at verse 50. Now, I'm going to give you, set this up a little bit so we don't have to read all, a whole bunch of it. Jesus is in the synagogue, and a man named Jairus comes who is one of the rulers of the synagogue, and he runs in, he drops at Jesus' feet, and he says, my daughter, my 12-year-old daughter is sick, and she's dying. Please, he's begging Jesus, please heal her. And then someone else comes in and goes, it's too late. She's already dead. There's nothing he can do anymore. Move on. And then when we get to uh, verse 50, we find out a little clue about John. Let's start at verse 50. It says, but Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the father and the mother of the child. And, and all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. See, this verse shows us that John, James, and Peter were all in Jesus' inner circle. Those three guys. Now, that's a nice way of saying, I think, he kept them really close. Now, I, I'm not sure why there was one commentator speculating on it. I thought it was almost comical. He said maybe he thought they needed the most work. And that by being close, they couldn't, they'd have a front row seat and they wouldn't miss anything. They may be on to something. I remember when I was in school, when I was a little girl, about two weeks into the new year, I would always get moved up close to the teacher. <laughs> And she would always make it sound really sweet, like, Fanita, I've got this special seat. <laughs> and I would sit by the teacher the whole year. I guess I was part of her inner circle. <laughs> we were close. It was a very special place. The commentary may be on to something there. Maybe he knew he needed to keep them close. I want you to drop your eyes to Luke 9. We're gonna find out just a little bit more. Starting at verse 28, 
Now about eight days after these sayings, he, told, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So about eight days, it says, after those sayings, which was he said, if anybody wants to follow me, need to deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. After he said that, about eight days later, he takes James, Peter, and John up on this mountain. There's speculation of which mountain it is, but it's a mountain of transfiguration. And he takes them up there to pray. And that is when they witness the transfiguration of Jesus. By the way, which I think probably really freaked them out. Can you imagine that? That had to be really terrifying for them. Now drop your eyes down a little further to Luke 9, 46. And it's, it's entitled, Who's the Greatest? That should give us some clue here. An argument arose among them as to which of them were the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the, reason of their heart, the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put it up by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. Now, Mark does a much better job of recounting that story, but because I didn't want you flipping back and forth and was trying to make it easy for you, I stayed in Luke. See, Mark actually records that when Peter, James, and John were coming back to Capernaum from the transfiguration, they're on their own, and they're traveling by the, just the three of them, they apparently broke out into an argument that got volatile, and it was about who would be the greatest among them. Now, when they get there, can you imagine the shock when Jesus kind of addresses that? I mean, he wasn't with them. And, and Mark says, and Mark even says that when he, when he says, so what did you talk about on the way to Capernaum? They got really quiet. It says they were silent. I'm sure they were thinking we should have gotten our story straight. And they're sitting there and they're just like, oh, I can just feel it, you know? And then in their silence, Mark records, Jesus jumps in, he jumps right in and he starts to teach them that who is first must be last. And he says, you have to be a servant to all. Can you imagine how their hearts were pounding? I'm sure they wish they could just disappear. Like they were a little afraid to move at that moment. See, I remember this as a kid. I remember that, um, and I know some of you out there, I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. There are others of you that did not color as close to the line as I did when I was a child, but I can remember when I would do something that wasn't quite right, I knew my dad was gonna know it because we lived in a town of 300 people. He owned one of the 10 businesses on the three block long Main Street, and all the old men drank coffee in his gas station. They knew everything. And he would come home, and with the interrogation skills of Colombo, my very favorite detective, <laughs> he would start in. So how was your day, Vanita? And I'd be silent, because I didn't know, where's he going? He's going somewhere with this. And then he'd say, well, I talked to so, oh gosh, he talked to so-and-so today. And pretty soon he hit on exactly what I had done and I can tell you the beads of sweat were on my face and I got real quiet and hot and I just wanted to be like disappear. I wanted a superhuman strength that I could just disappear from that moment. 
I think that's how they felt. Jesus was calling them out. He's saying instead of arguing, instead of fighting with each other, instead of putting each other down and rejecting others and exalting ourselves, he told them that they needed to humble themselves, become more like servants. He said that if they wanted to be first in the kingdom, they needed to be more childlike. They needed more love. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, four and five on your verse sheet. Love is patient and kind. Love is not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And he probably wanted to add, and love doesn't fight with each other about who's the greatest. See, essentially, Jesus taught John a lesson in love by saying, love is manifested in service to one another, not by exalting yourself and then lording it under, over everyone else. And I think this part right here set the scene for the next few verses. We're gonna look there. Look down at uh, 49, Luke 9, 49. John answered, Master, we saw one casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, I'm not positive exactly what motivated John to speak up right away with this encounter he had had. I can only speculate that maybe the last conversation in light of that had maybe sparked this, I don't know. Um, it's almost like we see him starting to change a little bit. It's kind of a pivotal moment for John. It's like he's confessing. I don't think it at all is like my kids, when one was in trouble, one of the other four would come in, one of the other three that weren't in trouble would swoop in and try to make that B, low B on their paper look good. Look what I got. Well, the other one's like, oh, in shame on the couch. I don't think he was trying to swoop in and say, look what I did, Lord. I don't think that's it. I think Jesus is starting to get to John's heart. I think he's starting to work on his heart. And I think he's trying to to teach him love, how to love. Not to lose his passion for truth, but rather to find that balance between truth and love. You know, John had a lot of really good qualities, ones that are very useful for kingdom causes, like courage, ambition, driven, he was bold, he was passion for the, had a passion for the truth, but to reach his full potential and look more like Christ, Jesus knew he was gonna need to balance those things with love or they were gonna become sin in his life. Because truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocritical. It's, well, truth, without, truth without love is just harsh. It's mean, and, and, and love without truth has no foundation at all. It's just wishy-washy. I think John knows that that's something we were all gonna struggle with because he writes about it so, so much. He writes about the balance between truth and love, and you're gonna find that out this week when you get started in 1 John. It's especially relevant today as we see people place way too much emphasis on love, and they like to, like to twist it and add the word tolerant to it. They don't have enough truth with it. I think some are just ignorant to the truth because, i be honest, I don't think truth is really taught much anymore. It's not taught in schools, it's not taught in colleges. Sadly enough, it's not taught in most churches. 
And then when there is some truth taught, often it's just some twisted version of truth that feels good and, and works in your life. And, and then there's simply those who don't even care about truth. You know, they just think, oh, truth is relevant. It's all relative. You know, you have your truth, I have mine. Just don't step on mine, I won't step on yours. And you know what? Their love isn't genuine at all. It's the kind of love that falls away quickly when things get rough. It's tainted, it's wishy-washy. But then on the other hand, there are those who are very theologically sound. They have a great grasp on the truth. They know what is recorded in God's word. They can even recite it to you. But they lack love and, and they become unloving and prideful and self-promoting. And that causes God's truths, even though we know they aren't, it makes them start to feel cold and stifling. And then it makes all of us who profess God's truth, all of us look kind of hypocritical and judgmental. And that's how we come across to them. See, truth without love and love without truth, neither one brings glory to God. And that's our job. As followers of Christ, we must not only know God's truth, we have to uphold that truth with his love. Now, there are a few times that John showed his true colors, but for the sake of, of time today, we can only go to a few. I want you to drop your eyes down to Luke 9, 51 through 56. It's like right after what we just read. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village." We've seen Jesus rebuke John for his hot temper, impulsivity, arrogance, and I bet these are the only ones that we see recorded right here. I bet there were times that aren't even recorded in the scripture with as much time he spent with Jesus that Jesus revealed more sin to him. And I bet just being with Jesus, being with him would illuminate the sin in his life. Now look at Romans 12, two on your verse sheet. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that's what John was doing. He was with Jesus and he was, he was being not really tested, but Jesus was, was showing his sin to him. And he was helping him know what's good, what's acceptable, what's perfect. It's being like him. Now, from what's recorded about John throughout the rest of the Gospels, it becomes very apparent that John matured. Um, let's look at a few instances. We're actually going to the Gospel of John now. So go to the next book in the New Testament, and that is John. And I want you to go to John uh, 18, and I'm going to start at verse 15. I'm going to read verse 15 and 16. This is shortly after Jesus has uh, been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and so it's kind of crazy, it's volatile, it's, everything's kind of aggressive and loud, and he's being taken in to be questioned. Simon Peter, it says, followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That's John. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. These reverses recorded that John courageously followed Jesus 
even when it led him into very uncertain circumstances. This was crazy and chaotic, and he followed Jesus right into it. The first time we see him recorded, uh, the, the next time we see him recorded is only recorded in John, the Gospel of John. So turn to John 19, and it's just one chapter over, and you go to verse 23. I'm going to read the next five verses. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it'll be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. For the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Of all the apostles, John was the only one mentioned standing at the foot of the cross as Jesus threw his last breath. And because John was at the foot of the cross, he got to hear the last words of Jesus. And in his last moments, Jesus saw, as he looked into John's eyes, he saw the fruition of all the love he had poured into John over the last years, and he knew that this hot-headed, judgmental, volatile young man had been transformed into a mature disciple. The disciple whom Jesus trusted with the care of his own mother. Now I wanna, I wanna tell you something I read. It kind of bugged me when it said woman, when he called her woman. But I read something that said, at that moment, Jesus was taking his identity out as her son and he was identifying as Mary's savior. And he's saying, you're now a woman in need of a savior and I am your savior. And then I think it's sweet that he looks at John, he says, behold your mother. So she still had her motherly identity with John. It's just a sweet moment at the foot of the cross and John was there. And history records that John took Mary to his home and she lived out the rest of her life with him, being cared for by the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, there's one last portion of the gospel about John that I want to read together because I think it's important in John's transformation story. Go to John 20, and um, we're going to read the first 10 verses. <clears throat> and I think you're also going to see the old John just a little bit here. I think it's kind of fun. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early where it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, that's John, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know what they have, where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Here's, here's their old John, I think. Both of them are running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. <laughs> Isn't that hysterical? I love that. And he reached the tomb first just in case there was any question. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. 
Then the other disciple, here we go, who had reached the, the tomb first. <laughs> I love that. Isn't that hysterical? I love it. It made me laugh so hard when I first read it. He also went in and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. I love that scripture. This is kind of like the icing on his spiritual walk with Jesus. It says he, walked, he, he had walked with Jesus day in and day out. And he ran to that tomb. He didn't walk. He even beat Peter. And when he got there and looked in, he saw and he believed. See, upon seeing the empty tomb, John fully believed now Jesus is the Son of God. It's like he's saying, I know what I know what I know what I know. He's really God. And as we grow in Christ, just like John, we'll see our weaknesses turned into strengths and we become an asset to the kingdom of God. We can be someone that, that Christ can use to accomplish his work. See, John was transformed by walking with Jesus. He's no longer the son of thunder. He had become the apostle of love, a guy that reflected the love of Christ. Look at the, the uh, Acts scripture on the top of your uh, outline. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they had been arrested, okay? So then when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that, he, that they had been with Jesus. John was recognized as one who had been with Jesus. John had spent so much time with Jesus that others now associated him with Jesus. You know, hearing that makes me wonder, I mean, can that be said about me? Am I spending enough time with Jesus that when I'm with others, they automatically associate me with Jesus? Is that happening? Am I someone who reflects Christ to those around me? Sadly enough, I'm gonna, I'm gonna confess, it's not always. I am definitely still a work in progress, and how do I know if I'm progressing? How do I know if I'm on the right path? Look at 1 John 2, 5 through 6. These are the words of John we're gonna start studying this week. He says, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. See, I think we can agree that John developed a healthy balance of truth and love, especially if we look at his writings uh, in, in his writings later in, in John. Look at 1 John 3, 23, 24 in your verse sheet. It says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit who he has given us. And 1 John 3, 18, it's just straight to the point. Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. He's not saying just talk the talk. He says walk the walk. Love with truth. These, the letters we're about to dive into this week are filled with this. And I want to suggest that John would concur also, I think if he was here, that he changed from the son of thunder to the apostle of love because he walked with Jesus. Not just when he felt like it, not just when it was convenient or it fit well in his schedule and he could pencil him in. He walked with him day in, day out, 
week after week, year after year, all the while he was leaning in closer and closer, even when the heat was on, even when things were uncomfortable. He walked with Jesus. And eventually, because he did that, Jesus' message, it became his lifestyle. His rough edges started to be smoothed out and he began to emulate his teacher. I think when we emulate our teacher, when we emulate Jesus, it brings a smile to his face. He was no longer that same man that he had been when he first met Jesus. And if he were here today and I were to ask him one question, what do you think changed your life? Or what was one thing you'd want us to know about your walk with Jesus? I think he would say, anytime you walk with Jesus, there's a change for the better. I think he'd want you to know that. Do it. I'm pretty sure that John recognized this transformation was made possible because of the great love that Jesus had for him. And I think that's why he calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. He uses the word love over 80 times in his gospel. That doesn't even include the three letters or the book of Revelation. That is why I think he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. I don't think it was pride. I think he knew that Jesus had called him. Jesus had spent time with him. He had revealed his weaknesses to him, sometimes gently, sometimes not so gently. And he had transformed him from this noisy, overly passionate, insensitive, demanding, volatile, highly emotional, sound familiar? Young man into a mature man who had become the apostle of love. I read something I thought was interesting. The word love that, that he's using when he calls himself the one whom Jesus loved, if it was, were to be literally translated into our language, it would, it would sound more like this. The one whom Jesus kept loving. <sighs> Seriously. That is amazing to me. Jesus didn't just love John, he kept on loving John. He loved John at his worst, and he kept on loving John from a son of thunder all the way into apostle of love. And I hope that gives you as much hope as it gives me. Because I can tell you for a fact, Jesus has loved me, and he has kept on loving me, and though I'm still a work in progress, I can say with certainty that I am not the same person I was when I first said yes to Jesus. If you haven't said yes to Jesus, what are you waiting for? I mean, put down your self-help books, turn off Oprah. <laughs> Jesus can run circles around those people. Say yes to his call and then dive into his word. That's how you spend time with Jesus. That's how you walk with Jesus. If he can transform the son of thunder into the apostle of love, just imagine what he could do with your life. Please pray with me. Father, we are all a work in progress. Father, we have all the qualities that we see in John, and Lord, we can learn so much from his life. Father, I thank you that you not just love us, you keep on loving us. 
Father, I pray that as we spend time with you, you reveal your truth to us that we can take and change our lives so that we ultimately look more like you and reflect you to the world around us. In Christ's name I pray this, amen.